Thanks for downloading this podcast from Burghead Free Church in Murray, Scotland. We exist to know Jesus and make Jesus known. Our vision is to grow to be a vibrant all-age church of 100 disciples. Find out more at burgheadfreechurch.org. We're going to come to uh, read now from the book of Ephesians. And uh, as Lindsay makes her way up to read for us, you might like to find Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14. Thanks, Lindsay. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Lindsay, so much for reading. And uh, just to uh, encourage you as well, you've probably heard the news, but um, assuming that from the 7th of June we pass into level one, um, then we'll be able to sing again. Uh, So two weeks today. Uh, It'll be from behind our masks, but nonetheless, we'll be able to sing again. And uh, we really look forward to that. Let's pray, shall we, together as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words written so many years ago by the Apostle Paul for the benefit of the church in Ephesus, but also for us. Lord, we pray that you would open your words to our minds and our hearts and open our minds and our hearts to you and to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I was once uh, selling a computer on eBay. Um, eBay is a kind of online marketplace, if you're not familiar. Anyway, it had gone well. I'd found a buyer. It was just what she needed. And she was prepared to travel a very long distance to pick it up. I prepared it all meticulously. It was cleaned, tested, sorted, and ready to go. And she gave me a call to say that she would be arriving shortly, having almost completed her journey of many hours in the car. Now, despite the fact that I had tested it many, many times, uh, I thought belt and braces will just give it a last test before she comes to make sure everything's perfect for her. After all, she's coming such a long way. Anyway, at that point, disaster struck. I plugged it in, I pressed the power button, and nothing happened. Nothing at all. No noise, no fans started, no systems booted up, no lights flashed. It was just a horrible, empty, deafening silence. I began to feel this panic rising in my chest. 
What was I going to do? I tried pressing the button again, but nothing happened. And then a bit harder, and nothing happened. And then I gave it a kick, and that didn't work either. So I had to ring this poor woman and call her off and say, I'm really sorry, it doesn't work. And she was not best pleased. Anyway, I later discovered, to my huge frustration, that the computer was absolutely fine. In the few moments between my penultimate and my final test, the sockets had tripped in the upstairs of our house. And in my panic, I hadn't thought to check that. The point is that if there is no power flowing, you can poke and prod and press and coerce and panic and kick as much as you want, but nothing is going to happen. And Paul's point today in Ephesians is that the Christian life is just like that too. So here's our first point. A prayer for power. So Paul picks up his train of thought where he left off last week. Do you remember back in chapter 3 verse 1 he began for this reason? In other words, what he's about to pray springs from what he's already had cause to say about God's plan for the world and the gospel in chapters 1 and 2. So do you remember back in chapters 1 and 2 we saw that God has a master plan for the world He's driving history in one direction, chapter 1, verse 10, to bring unity to all things under Christ as head and ruler. And God is drawing us, his people, into that plan. Remember what we've heard so far, that we were spiritually dead because of our sin, but because of Christ dying on the cross in our place, he has made us spiritually dead people come alive. Our sins washed away, us set on a new course, us adopted into God's family. The certainty of future judgment has been replaced by the certainty of future hope and eternal life with God. And what's more, God is bringing that kind of new life to all kinds of people from all kinds of places. And so the church in Ephesus and here today is, or at least ought to be, all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds, a multi-age, multi-background, multi-ethnic, multi-everything community, united by Jesus. To put it briefly, our relationship with God has been reconnected and our relationships with each other have been restored. That's God's master plan. That's what God is doing in the world. And the plan is now an open secret, Paul has said. Once it was a mystery, but now it's made known. Everybody knows. But it doesn't always feel that way, does it? That we're caught up in God's great master plan for the world. Real life often feels more mundane than that. The Christian life feels much more like a struggle than that. In fact, it is often a struggle, and Paul knows that because he's writing from prison. Now, sometimes we look around and get the wrong impression. We might be tempted to think that either God hasn't really got a master plan, or if he does, it isn't very good, or it isn't really working. We live in this kind of in-between time. Jesus has come, he's died, he's been raised, but he's yet to return in all his glory. We live in the in-between time, and these kind of doubts can plague us. For example, do you remember Paul said that we've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ? Right? Chapter 1, we've been adopted to sonship, brought into the family of God. Remember chapter 1, God has chosen us 
to be holy and blameless. Remember chapter 1, God has given us his spirit to take up residence in us. And remember as well that that spirit acts as a deposit guaranteeing a future inheritance. It points to the future. In other words, we have these blessings now, but only in part. We've not yet experienced them fully. We're looking forward to that. So, for example, I am wonderfully adopted into God's family. That means I and you can call Almighty God our Father. And we really do know him and relate to him now. And yet we don't yet see him face to face. Or I could say I, I am being transformed to be like my father God. We, we grow in the family likeness. We were chosen, says Paul, to be holy and blameless. And yet that process is not yet complete. I don't need to tell you that I'm not yet fully like him. I still struggle with sin. And so do you. The point is the blessings are ours. And we really do experience them now in part, but not yet in all their fullness. We live in the kind of in-between time, and that can be hard. And so the question on Paul's mind now is how will we get the help and the strength and the resources we need to live wholeheartedly for Jesus now? And in the Christian life, that's a seriously important question, isn't it? Maybe the most important question. To get a bit more specific, for example, how can I be more Christ-like at work when there's such a pressure to conform? Or how can I love my family sacrificially like Jesus did when they're so annoying? Or how can I remember that I am loved by God when I feel guilty and condemned. We need help with all of that. We need power, says Paul, to help. And so here is Paul's prayer for God's power. You can't miss the fact it's about power. He keeps on saying that word. Have a look there, verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power. Or verse 18, that you may have power together with all the Lord's people. Or verse 20, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power at work within us. It's a prayer for power. So here's point two. It's a prayer to the source of all power. The basic point is that you can plug your kettle or your laptop or your toaster in at home but if all the power stations have stopped burning coal or all the wind turbines have stopped changing, turning, you won't get very far because there is no power. So see how Paul begins. Verse 15, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power. If you want power to live for Jesus, it comes from God, nowhere else. Only God is gloriously rich in the resources that we need to live for him. We've heard about this power before, of course, in, in Ephesians. It's the same power, chapter 1, verse 19, that raised Christ from the dead. It's the same power that God used to start the wheels of his master plan. It all comes from him. This is no small power. And God gives his power by his spirit 
right to the inner being of who we are. But you might ask, well, what what does God give us power for exactly? What does he want us to do with it? Well, two things. It's power to renovate and power to appreciate. So first, power to renovate. It wasn't long after Morag and I got married that I realized that there would have to be changes in me. I was told in no uncertain terms, and not unreasonably, it has to be said, uh, that leaving stubble in the bath and picking my nails and even waking Morag up at 2 a.m. to tell her about the amazing new idea I'd just had, these things were all somehow strangely unwelcome. As husband and wife begin new life together, they take up residence together and they inevitably change one another, hopefully for the better. That's the sense in verse 17. The power is so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. Staying with the marriage theme for a moment, uh, in the brief lockdown break last autumn, uh, Morag and I had a night away in a hotel. It was child-free, and it was glorious. Anyway, the the room that we stayed in in the hotel was nice. Uh, It might not have been completely to my taste. But that said, at no point during our one-night stay did I consider removing the wallpaper or changing the color scheme or taking down the curtains. In our one-night stay in a hotel, at no point did I consider knocking into the bathroom to make a bigger space. Because when you reside briefly somewhere, that's obviously not what you do. Not if you want to be allowed back in the hotel anyway. But when you buy a new house, as we also did last year, one you intend to stay in for a long time, which we do, Well, then the renovations start. We've knocked down three walls and counting. We've put in a new window. We've converted a garage. Now, we've already learned back in chapter one that God has taken up residence in every Christian by his spirit. So you see it again there in verse 17. Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Now, that word dwell there is much stronger than a kind of temporary residence it's not a one night stay in a hotel Christ is to dwell to take up long term residence eternal residence in us so if you're a Christian you are God's dwelling now that's what he's saying God by his spirit is making his home in you And when God makes his permanent home somewhere, well, he brings in full-scale renovations. This is a prayer for God who dwells in us to work in us and renovate us. One Bible commentator puts it this way. When the spirit of Christ moves in, he gradually redecorates everywhere. Room by room, the horrible old wallpapers of selfishness are replaced with a brand new wallpaper called love. The old ceilings, darkened by fear of death, are repainted with bright colors of hope in the resurrection of Christ. Filthy old carpets, stained by years of immorality, are replaced by clean new carpets of purity and kindness. And the rickety old furniture of idolatry is gradually replaced 
with sparkling new ministries that worship Jesus. Paul's prayer is a prayer for God to powerfully renovate your life. That more and more, you and I would look like and sound like and be like Jesus as he begins his renovation project in us. There's two lessons from this for us to think about. Firstly, it's a lesson in self-reflection. It's right for us to ask ourselves, how is the renovation work going? Is this a prayer that you're praying for your own life? Are there any real and, and tangible changes in your own life in the last year or five years or whatever it is? Or as you live the day-to-day -day struggle of the Christian life, have you settled for the idea that change isn't really possible, that you won't ever really grow to be more like Jesus? Paul's prayer tells us, don't settle. Pray for God to renovate you, to make you more honest at work and more patient at home, to have greater compassion and care for those others who don't yet know Christ and who desperately need to hear the gospel. Paul knows that these Ephesians are Christians, and yet he still thinks they need this prayer. And so I would say, you and I need this prayer too. So are we praying this prayer? Second observation, this is a prayer, but it's also a lesson in prayer, a lesson in how to pray. Let me ask you, what are you praying for yourself and for others? Here's Richard Koch in that same Bible commentator again. He says, we can easily read magnificent passages like this and then close our Bibles and just pray about the weekend barbecue or the, sun, or the children's colds. If we could learn to pray not only for our daily needs, but for God's big spiritual plans for other people, which are described in this passage, we would be more likely to witness God answering our prayers. The truth is God cares much more about my son or daughter becoming a fit dwelling for the Holy Spirit than about what score he gets in his science test. Paul prays this prayer. Are you praying it too? I've been in a good many prayer meetings in my life. You'll be pleased to know. So often we are derailed into praying for things which are not unimportant, but not of central importance. When you pray for others, maybe you have children or grandchildren, friends, family. What do you pray for them? Are you most concerned about them being brought to know Jesus and to know him more? Or is it just Auntie Maureen's bunions that we pray about? Anyway, it's not just a prayer for the power to renovate, but secondly, it's a prayer for power to appreciate. Uh, they say that you, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. I think we've all learned the truth of those words uh, in the last year. Simple freedoms like having friends around for dinner or going to a church prayer meeting or stepping into a cafe without having to use industrial disinfectant. We've come to appreciate these things all the more, I'm sure, as they've been taken away from us. And, and Paul prays for something similar here, power that we might appreciate. That we, this is verse 18, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people 
to grasp. In other words, he wants you to understand something, to to comprehend, to, to get your head around something. What is it? Well, read on. To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Now, back in verse 17, we can see that we Christians are already rooted in God's love. Like a plant that's been planted there, we have our roots in the right place, in his love. The Christian life only began on the basis of God's love, which he showed to us in the gospel. Remember, we were spiritually dead. If he didn't love us, he would never have chosen us and rescued us. But Paul wants more for our lives. He wants you to really grasp the extent of that love, the width, the length, the height, the depth of God's love. I wonder when you picture God in your mind's eye, what do you see? Do you see him as a God of love? Or has he been distorted as an angry tyrant? Do you see him as a kind of eternally displeased father who's always wanting more and always out to get you and never quite impressed by you? These are all misrepresentations based on a kernel of truth about God's righteousness and holiness. Many of us perhaps need to learn or relearn that yes, God is righteous and just and holy, but he's also wonderfully completely and supremely loving to his children. Paul says his love is wide, which I think means it's an accepting love. He welcomes people, remember, from every tribe and nation and tongue and language. We've already seen that in Ephesians. He draws these people together, even the worst of enemies, even Jews and Gentiles. His love is also long, says Paul. It's not a kind of flash in the pan. It's not here today and gone tomorrow. Remember, chapter 1, he chose you before the creation of the world. His love is high, which I think means it's a kind of exulting love. He raises you from death and seats you in the heavenly realms with Jesus. And his love is deep. Paul said, in Christ we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins. I wonder if you've ever stopped to consider what it cost the Father to buy you back. The death of his own son. One last quote. Have you stopped to realize that he accepted such depths of agony out of personal love for you? Perhaps some of us think that the things we've done or or repeatedly done in the red light district or on the battlefield or in the office or on the internet or in our imagination are too terrible to be forgiven. We need to grasp that Jesus Christ not only knows the filthy things we've done and the far more numerous kind things that we completely fail to even consider doing, but he willingly accepted deep into his soul all the punishments that we deserve. His is an incredibly deep, sacrificial love. Which is almost sort of too amazing to get your head around, isn't it? Which is exactly how Paul goes goes on, verse 19. And to know this love, which surpasses all knowledge. 
the deepest part of the ocean, as my children who love science programs on YouTube keep telling me, is the Mariana Trench in the Northwest Pacific. I'm glad they're not here to contradict me. I think that's right. It is seven miles deep. You could fully submerge Everest in it. No submarine can withstand the pressure to explore at those depths. God's love is like that part of the Northwest Pacific. It is deep and vast. And in the end, it surpasses all knowledge. It's greater than we could ever comprehend. But the depth of the Mariana Trench doesn't stop us enjoying splashing on the shore in Birkhead Bay or paddleboarding at Findhorn or surfing at Lossiemouth, as one of our daughters was doing yesterday. We can know, we can enjoy something of God's amazing love. Next week, we'll start to draw practical conclusions from everything we've heard of God's master plan. Uh, If you you cast your eye forward, you'll see that Paul begins chapter 4 with the word, therefore, he's going to start drawing out all the conclusions for what this means about life and and what we should do. But for these first three chapters, the the main application, here's the thing to remember, for our life, it's not so much something to do. There's not a checklist of to-dos from today's talk. In all of this, Paul is trying to shape not what you do, but how you think. He's not saying do this or do that. He's saying think this way. He's saying know that God has a plan for the world. Let that shape the way you think. He's saying remember you were brought from death to life only because of God's kindness. Let that shape the way you think. He's saying the church is at the center of God's plan. Let that shape the way you think. He's saying, align your thinking with mine and align your praying with mine. Pray like this. Pray for the Holy Spirit to work in your life. Expect Jesus to renovate your life and change you and pray for the insight to grasp, to comprehend, to understand what all of this demonstrates about Jesus' love. Is that possible? Paul says yes, verse 20. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power at work within us. And we should want, I think, to join in with Paul and say, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Maybe just have a moment to reflect on the work of renovation that Jesus is bringing in our lives and and how we are appreciating him and all he's done. Our Father, we pray that out of your glorious riches, you would strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith. And we pray that we, being rooted and established in your love, might have power from you 
to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know something of this love which surpasses all knowledge that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening. Please feel free to share this podcast. And if you'd like to be up to date with each week's talk, why not search Burkhead Free Church on your favorite podcast app and hit the subscribe button. For more information, go to burkheadfreechurch.org.